Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 37. This week's episode is sponsored by Joan Clevier's dance production, The North, on at the Dundee Rep Theatre on the 30th of September, uh, 8 o'clock. And here's Joan to tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, hello, my name is Joan Clevier and I'm an independent choreographer based here in Dundee and we are presenting The North at The Rep this 30th of September and it's a dance theatre production about our fascination with the idea of North, the landscape, uh, the animals, the creatures, but also the dark humour, the silence, the people, the stories with a lot of uh, strange things happening in it. So, as I said, uh, 30th of September at 8 o'clock at Dundee Rep Theatre. Um, if you'd like to get tickets, um, you can go to cccdundee.com forward slash the north. Get them there. Um, or drop in at Dundee Rep Theatre or give them a ring on 01382 223 530. Um, so that one performance um, on the 30th, they're going to do a bit of a discussion afterwards, so with Joanne and the dancers. Um, the performance will also be BSL Sign Language Interpreted by Jennifer Ramsey. And um, beforehand, they're going to do an interesting session. So 4 till 6, they're encouraging artists and designers to go along with their sketchbooks um, and sketch the art, the and sketch the dancers uh, warming up and rehearsing for the night's performance. So, on to this week's podcast... Um, it is Malath Abbas, who is an artist, uh, producer, uh, games designer, developer, and co-founder of the Biome Collective. Um, we talk about that in <clears throat> a great bit of detail. But even if you don't know the name, you'll probably have come across his work in Dundee over the past few years. Um, himself and Biome have been creating some amazing pieces um, and amazing collaborations as well. I think that's one of the things he's pioneered really well um, is a collaboration between uh, games and other random medium, whether that's dance or design or, or whatever that may be. And yeah, so they those guys did the... The light nights, big, massive, interactive light display on the steeple that night. And they also did Killbox, which is a, an amazing drone warfare uh, sort of art piece, I suppose. Um, and they also arranged Arcadia, which I mean, one or two of you might have been at. But yeah, so I mean, Miles done some amazing things. Um, and as much as he was apprehensive about this coming out, it is a phenomenal chat. A really interesting guy. Um, and his story is, is wonderful. Oh, and uh, during this episode, uh, Fred the dog does make a little bit of an appearance whining uh, for a bit of attention um, throughout. So, uh, yeah, if, that's, if you're wondering what the noise is, yeah, it's probably Fred playing about in the background. And one other thing to note that I completely forgot to do with the start of the second series back in with the, the last episode um, is the podcast recommendation. Um, so back on track this week. So in the outro, there will be another podcast recommendation from myself. So yeah, you can stick around then and get it. But now let's get into the episode. So episode number 37, and this is with Malice Abbath. Sure, so I guess... I mean, I make video games, primarily speaking. That's what kind of brought me to Dundee. And if I roll back to where that kind of started, uh, a lot of it is, I guess, kind of playing games as a kid. Uh, I'm from Iraq, so I grew up in Iraq. Uh, and I have very fond memories of my dad, you know, buying an Atari for me and my sister uh, and then playing that. And then when we came to the UK in 91, um, 
there's a bit of a gap where you know I, I kind of always played my friends consoles like the Mega Drives and SNES and stuff and uh, I think there was a point when my father bought a PC for the family and this was like early 90s so it was quite an expensive bit of kit but he kind of saw it as a way to kind of he saw it as a future he's kind of saw it as a way to kind of you know education and knowledge that kind of stuff so and for me it was like oh cool I can you know get get Doom 2 and stuff and play you know weird you know quite violent games as a young kid but that was quite cool for me to kind of uh, yeah kind of get up to date with kind of technology and I remember I bought my first console I saved up a bunch of money and bought a PlayStation the first one I had a, I had a job uh, in Southport as in an antique shop kind of just you know just doing a Saturday job kind of thing and I saved up all my money and I, and I bought a PlayStation I bought I think Final Fantasy 7 and Tekken and a bunch of other games and so those... at that point what what sort of games what sort of genres were you into I guess I was very drawn to Japanese stuff and that kind of ties into my childhood too in a sense that I grew up watching a lot of Japanese animation, you know, especially from Iraq because a lot of the stuff was Japanese that was be imported into the country. So I was always drawn to that aesthetic, that style, uh, those narratives, uh, you know, kind of mech stuff and just the cool stuff you see in Japan and it's a bit different. Um, and I guess growing up as a bit of a nerd, a bit of a geek kind of was always drawn to that. I was always into comics, but probably manga more so than anything. And just generally animation. I, was, I had a huge love for animation, and I still do. But I guess when I... Um, playing with technology, playing with computers and games, and kind of realising that making something interactive is a lot more... It's just a lot more fun. Kind of really... You know, I was into something that might... You know, look at the PlayStation graphics now. You look at them, they're not really great. But the fact that it was interactive meant that you believe these characters you believe the stories so i was always into that um and so i guess really that kind of love of technology art and that kind of stuff led me to a weird path i didn't really do very well in school i found school to be quite tough primarily because i was growing up in a different culture to to iraq and i was kind of trying to make sense of that so at what, what point in your childhood did you move move from Iraq? i was nine eight or nine okay. and lived briefly in south wales but then we came to Liverpool. We loved the city, and we settled there. Uh, and both my parents were, uh, you know, uh, my dad was a teacher. My mum was a lab technician in, in Iraq. Both graduated from kind of a physics background, but they struggled to find that kind of work here. So, uh, in 1996, I think my my parents invested in a, in a kind of you know got all the, all the, all the family money and kind of all the savings and put it in towards a business. So they ran a, a news agent shop for 14 years in Liverpool. And that was quite formative for me because obviously I kind of helped my parents in the shop and that kind of made it easy for me just to kind of do nothing, kind of just be at home, help with parents and kind of, I did, you know, university through like a access course to a, a foundation degree to a master's all in Liverpool because it was easy for me because I was living with my parents and it was free and cheap and I was, you know, getting a student loan which I was spending on rubbish. Um, but I guess... That process of being involved in a business also introduced me to the idea of kind of yeah, running a business and appreciating things like customers and communication skills and stuff like that. So, and that kind of fed into university too. I kind of, when I was doing, I did a computer games course. It was a fairly early course. It was actually sold to me as a general design and animation course, but it actually became heavily to do with technology and programming. So by the time I graduated, it was it was primarily to do with programming, which 
I was never good at, though I enjoyed maths and physics. It was never my calling, shall we say. Uh, I managed to pass, which is fine. But then I remember I left, I left uni and I was like, what do I do with myself? And I got in touch with a games company in Liverpool called Bizarre Creations, which is quite a big studio at the time. And I got some advice from them and they recommended this master's course in animation because I wanted to do more art stuff. And um, I'd never come across this before. I didn't know what a master's was really, you know, so it was, it was all new to me. And so I kind of went to the interview and I was waiting to find out to do it the following year. So I kind of took another year out helping my parents with the shop. And in that year, just because I put my CV on a website online, I got uh, asked to interview for a, a water utilities company and it was a programming job. And I was like, oh, this is weird, but I'll go to it anyway. It's a bit of practice for interviews, you know, may as well. So I went to it and it was actually in Birkenhead across the river in Liverpool. And, um, you know, I got a 2-2 out of uni and there were two other graduates who, you know, had first honours, all that kind of stuff. And they were both quite nervous on the day. And I was a bit, I was a bit more relaxed because to me it was like, I didn't actually want the job. I was there for the, for the chat and the experience. And I got offered the job like on the dot and that freaked me out a little because I was like, oh, what do I do now? And I was just honest with the guy. I was like, but I don't really do, I'm not a very good programmer and all this kind of stuff. But they actually gave me a test. Hmm. They gave you problem solving tests. And I guess I'm good at problem solving, but in terms of knowing particular languages or that kind of, the, the nitty gritty stuff, I was never good at. So the guy just said to me, it's fine. You can learn on the job. You know, we're going to invest in you. And it's quite a well-paid position, you know, just a junior program, but it's quite good, quite good money. And he gave me time to think about it. But I remember when I walked out, he said to me, you know, let me know in a week's time. And as I was walking out, I just looked in the office and there was just everyone dressed in, you know, shirts and quite smart, you know. And I remember just looking going, as much as I love to dress up smartly occasionally, this wasn't me. And that kind of that feeling. And I think I spoke to him two days after. I was like, I'm really sorry, but it's not for me. And that kind of really helped me then to focus on the masters, which I got into and... Mm. Uh, that was a year of kind of really focused um, study. I kind of um, wonder, I mean, you're talking about that. Um, so it was that, that little glimpse into the culture of that office that really put you off that position. But I wonder, like, yeah. there must be a lot of people that that happens to where they've been talented designers, creatives, programmers, whatever, and they've, they've sort of gone, well, the job interests me, but that environment I'm going to have to be in every day really doesn't. Yeah, definitely. And I guess I wasn't fully appreciate, I didn't fully appreciate what, what options were available. I just knew in that moment that that made me feel uncomfortable because I guess I was used to working with my family in quite a relaxed newsagent environment and then generally doing the odd jobs here and there and kind of more retail kind of stuff. And then university, which again was very, very relaxed. And I'd never had that kind of formal clocking in and dressing up or something. And in a way, it took me back to school, which was never good for me. So, um, and I guess after that, I, yeah, did the masters, and I really enjoyed that. Kind of getting to explore more kind of creative work, kind of really brushed up on three D skills and technical skills. And even then, I realised that because I'd done quite a technical course, it put me in quite an advantageous position of knowing the technical side of games which meant that I was very good at kind of communicating with programmers, artists. So kind of it put me in the, more, the producer kind of role, which is the kind of thing you don't, you don't learn, you just kind of, you grow into over time. Mm -hmm. But I realized early on that that was a possibility for me. 
Uh, but I still kind of pursued more art roles and design roles. And that's kind of what brought me to Dundee. Um, so I graduated and at the time, the game sector, there were a lot of big studios that were basically crashing, you know, going under, going bust. And it happened in Liverpool, happened in Dundee. Uh, in Liverpool, it was Bizarre Creations, the guys that advised me about doing the Masters. And I was kind of disheartened that this big studio had collapsed and uh, those jobs were not available anymore. So I, was, I got little jobs here and there, doing primarily doing kind of 3D artwork for animation studios. So that was good, nice kind of creative work. But then I was, I was invited to join a team who were doing this competition called Dare to be Digital at Abertay University. And quite honestly, I'd heard of Dundee. I'd never heard of Abertay prior to that point. Um, and I thought, oh, this is, sounds interesting. You know, I'm not working at the moment. I'll take this kind of opportunity. And what sort of capacity was that role in? So what was your... I guess it was um, it was actually my friend Vicky who I did the Masters with. It was her cousin Joe who she was teaming up with. And, and Joe and uh, his team were all in Preston studying programming primarily. And Vicky was going to be the artist for that team. But Vicky just got a job. And so she then asked me to join, you know, invited me to join the team. And so I met the guys in Preston. Um, and yeah, primarily it was as an artist. Now, I was already at the time like 26 or 27 much older than the other guys and I guess naturally I took a bit more of a leadership role in that team more of a kind of production role um but really I you know I was not not an official leader because you know I was you know I kind of I just kind of used my experience to kind of guide everyone along sort of thing you think you've always sort of been comfortable in that sort of maybe overseeing or taking leads and projects and things like that I guess I would not use the word comfortable. I would say that I'm quite often uncomfortable in that position. But I tend to find that... Um, I tend to find myself slotting into that position quite well. Why do you think that is then? I think a lot of it is to do with communication skills. It's just... Especially within a games environment. Because games are so... It's programming, it's technology, it's art design coming together. Uh, and most people, they specialize in those roles, you know, quite quite a lot. And so normally you get a lot of miscommunication between art and, and code and design and vice versa. And because I have a vague interest in all these things and, you know, and, and I have experience in all these things, it just means that I kind of know when someone's talking about a particular thing, what they actually mean, and I can kind of communicate it across. Mm -hmm. And I guess because I was kind of, I've come to this um, a bit older than most people sort of thing, so... And I finished my master's when I was like, yeah, 26, 27. So I was always a bit older than everyone else. So that kind of life experience. Um, and a lot of it kind of predates to coming to the UK as a kind of refugee from Iraq and kind of um, always being slightly more mature than my kind of my peers, just through life experience, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, and I guess the, the challenge in sc at school was... Um, I wanted to kind of uh, almost like revert back to where my peers were at, you know, in terms of their interests. And But I always struggled because I was a bit ahead of them. So that was kind of the challenge in school. Yeah. yeah, I mean, life experience is an interesting topic because it's, it's obviously a very vague and broad term. Yeah. Um, but it's something that people come back to um, as something that's really valuable in your, in your career. And it's something you only get with time. Um, yeah, but it can come in, in so many different forms I think for me personally it was spending a year somewhere else so doing a year out in Canada 
Um, going and seeing a bit of the world, I think that yeah, really yeah. helped. Uh, yeah. Working in different places as well definitely helps. But yeah. I don't know what you, you feel is your sort of what helped you grow your life experiences. Yeah, definitely. I think it was being um, coming across a more diverse range of experiences, people, opportunities, art forms, all that kind of stuff. It's really helped shape me to who I am today. And I think what normally happens is we're all, you know, we're all going along in life, kind of, you know, we're all, we, we kind of, everyone kind of goes through life ticking boxes, essentially. You do school, you do uni, you get a job, right? But what we don't realize along the way, when things go wrong, you know, when we're challenged, normally that kind of can knock you down and stuff. I find that actually those are the moments where then I've kind of got up and I've been stronger for it. Um, so I think that's something we don't, as a society, we don't take advantage of or mm. we don't necessarily facilitate those opportunities where we're able to actually be engaged with more just different ideas, concepts, people and new challenges. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So you, you sort of, you came up Dundee for the, the Dare to be Digital Festival. So yeah. how did that go? How did that project run? It was cool actually. So it was the competition led up to the festival. So, and it was a paid competition. So it was awesome. It was like um, about eight or 10 weeks of prototyping an idea that we collaboratively came up with. And it was just like quite intense because you know there's a, there's a limit and it's, you know, obviously there's the competition element because everyone's doing the same thing. We're all housed in Abate and it was cool for me to be kind of come across so many different creative people within, within the game sector. Um, and we, we all, our, my team in particular, we all did it with the intention of getting jobs, you know, as a result. So we all saw it as a way to kind of walk away with an amazing CV and an amazing kind of technical prototype. Um, and we ended up getting a BAFTA Once to Watch nomination, which was quite surprising for us. So we did well in that regard. Uh, and as soon as that kind of came to an end, all of us were snapped up for the various kind of jobs. Uh, I actually came back to Dundee because I quite like the city. I like the fact that there were opportunities and there's lots of kind of options available to me. So I started working for a few startups as a 3D artist and a designer. I did that for about, um, I think, six to nine months. And in that time, a few of my friends who I'd met through Dare to be Digital were, were just about to start a company. Um, they were just about to graduate and start a company because it was a funding opportunity from the Prototype Fund, which was, was called at the time. So we all applied to that, the four of us, um, and we started a company. So I kind of left my the jobs I had. You kind of it was all freelance anyway, kind of short term contracts anyway. So it was mm. fairly flexible, and I kind of jumped ship into this uh, brand new company. Um, so yeah, we started a studio. We're housed actually in Abate, uh, and we ran that studio for three or four years, uh, to various degrees of success. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What was that called? Quartic Lama, uh, and that was a name that the guys came up with. I did not have anything to do with that, but it was a quite a cool name because whenever I was very much the kind of the guy that we'd go to events and stuff and do networking. And so one of the guys from Quartic Lama, uh, Tom, he came up with this idea that it was this kind of nth dimensional beast. And whenever I'd go and I'd say to people, I, I'm from Quartic Lama, they go, what? And it was always a good conversation starter because he'd had to explain what it was. And we had this kind of fictional narrative about it being some beast from the nth dimension and that got a laugh out of people um and it kind of stuck in that sense it worked really well um but that was that was an amazing experience for me but also an incredibly stressful period of my life as well because uh yeah starting a business with 
a bunch of friends is uh, is it, is it, <laughs> it sounds like an easy thing, but it's not at all. So Yeah, do you think working with your friends is a good or a bad idea? I think is a bit. Of, it could be a bit of both, really. I think ultimately you need to treat it as a professional thing, and you have to be detached from those friendships in the kind of business context. But also, like you know, friendship. You know, friendship is a good thing. You know, you've got trust, you've got honesty, you've got people that you get on with. That's always a good thing. So I think it's about managing relationships appropriately. Mm. And I think for us, we we started the studio and, and literally year on year. We, the, you know, our turnover was was increasing. Things were getting better. We were getting, we developed a prototype. Uh, we got some follow-on funding, so we developed it further. On the side, we were doing a balance of, you know, kind of work for hire that paid quite well, but was, wasn't very good work. It wasn't creative work. But we were kind of occasionally coming across quite creative projects, which they didn't pay very well. But in terms of creative output, they were very, very rewarding. Um, and I guess over the kind of three-year, four-year period, the pressures of um, needing to scale up a business as a startup were kind of mounting year on year. And that was really tough because we were finding it increasingly harder to kind of work together uh, because of the pressures of doing work for hire and creative work and balancing all that out. When you talk about pressure, though, where, I mean, where is that coming from? I think I think just uh, externally, society, um, the creative sector, Does the like business a, sector in a, general, a sort of an expectation that's put upon you. Oh, definitely. I think it's uh, yeah, it's a society-wide problem where we, we everything is associated with kind of growth and making something bigger, faster, uh, all that kind of stuff. So because those are the sort of the ties to what people perceive as success oh totally it's the kind of economic milestones that you have to the tick boxes again it's this kind of idea of you've got you know your turnover is going up and then your staff numbers are going up and your all that kind of stuff and at first i was into the idea i'll be honest with you it's like yeah that makes sense i'm quite ambitious i want to you know lead quite big teams with quite ambitious projects but you know, no one really tells you the pressures that come along with that and how that's not necessarily that the right, the only thing to do, let alone let alone the right thing to do. Um, so I guess the cool thing about um, my time at Quartic Lama was that there was a few creative projects that I really enjoyed because they were quick, fast turnaround projects. Tended to be quite collaborative in, in the sense that we work with external people on just stuff that was a bit more left field, a bit more kind of like here's a weird problem, can you solve it? You know, here's a wee budget, and we just kind of went in. And it was quick and easy. We we got there, did it. I say easy. It was very challenging, but in that kind of very rewarding atmosphere of learning something new, and you know, problem solving in terms of like no one's done this before. What can we do, sort of thing. So in that sense, it was good, and it was wrapped up. We were paid. It was kind of job done. So I really enjoyed that, and I was like, I want more of that kind of work and more of that kind of uh, more collaborative, fast-paced stuff. So uh, that kind of got me thinking. Uh, and also during that time at Quartic Lama, I was very lucky that I got to do some traveling. Um, uh, there was a thing called Cross Creative, which is an amazing program, which meant that I got to kind of um, travel to San Francisco and Toronto to see the creative sectors there and see what they were doing. And in particular, Toronto, I came across a games collective, uh, which was quite new to me at the time. But it kind of that kind of opened my eyes to the idea of different business models. Um, obviously, I, w- I was aware of Fleet Collective because uh, I've got friends here like Donna and, and Lyle and Tom. But I, 
I never thought about something that's kind of specifically focused on games. Um, so Why was, do you think that is then? It's just that it's not commonplace in the industry to operate like that. I think because we're we're um, the problem with games, generally speaking, is that it's it's you know it's a very uh, lucrative market potentially, right? There is a lot of money in this in this in this bubble of games, and so we're always funneled down the startup model, and this idea that you're gonna you know get something, sell it to someone, and they make more money off it, right? So it fits that model really really well, and because. People who make games are, you know, very, very talented in what they do. And that tends to be, you know, amazing art, design and programming. And they don't have the time to start coming up with interesting business models, you know. So we don't always get the opportunity or the breathing space to do that. Um, but I think uh, as it gets easier to make games through tools and technology, as more uh, diverse people make games... We're kind of having to. We we we're getting the space to kind of come up with new, interesting business models. Mm. And I think I suppose across the creative community, you're you're looking to that as well. Where we're reconsidering the spaces that we work within, the amount of people that you collaborate with, or that you actually pull in on certain projects, the way that people are employed, whether that's part time, full time, freelance, whatever. I think all that's becoming much more flexible, um, and I think it's 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 much more rewarding. Um, I think it that flexibility allows you for for me anyway it allows for a more enjoyable life that, that feels a bit more relaxed um, that if you need to do something at a certain time or you need to nip out and catch this thing or do that thing or speak to this person you have that flexibility in your, in your day to do that which is great yeah definitely and I find it really interesting that kind of in many ways um, these ideas have always you know have been developed many many years ago decades ago hundreds of years ago maybe but it's only now that technology is has allowed us to kind of do this kind of stuff on this kind of scale should we mm -hmm. say yep. uh, so that's the kind of benefits of technology that's allowed us to kind of have a go at this sort of stuff yeah um and, and be sustainable i think the one thing that you know we don't necessarily take advantage of is the fact that we are in a global society you know whether we like it or not it is what it is mm. and again technology the internet allows for that which is brilliant and i guess as a as a maker making something niche knowing that that niche there's a sizable audience for that niche worldwide is awesome you know but then it's a case of how do you connect to that audience and all those challenges so mm. yeah it's never easy <laughs> so you described yourself there as a maker yeah is that if you were to introduce yourself to someone is that how you would do it oh it's so tough because i use so many different words i think i quite like the the word maker because it kind of it's a bit more uniform for me personally. So either a maker, generally speaking, or a game maker. Because I think uh, generally within games, you're a games designer. Um, and I definitely do games design, but that's not all that I do. I think my design approach is more broader than that. Uh, and then the, the generic term is games developer. But I think for me, that's too technical. Mm. And I don't really, that doesn't really sit well with, with me personally. So I like the term game maker. Because I think um, I make games in a sense that in a very craft-like way, but also in the kind of broader sense as a producer, artist, or designer as part of the kind of collaborative process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, so I, I realise I cut you <laughs> off probably before we got to. Um, so you were off in Toronto. Yeah, um, yeah, and that was really interesting seeing that kind of diff different business model. 
Uh, and I guess when I, I go back to Dundee, and it, it was a particular tough time with our startup, and I was just thinking to myself, you know, what do I do next if we're wrapping this up? And, you know, I was looking at the different jobs available uh, within Dundee, but also outside of Dundee, because essentially, um, you know, I was in a position to go anywhere. But I guess speaking to the various different people in the city, um, people like Donna, you know, with Fleet Collective and seeing what, what's happened before, I was like, maybe I can give this a go, this kind of different model. And I remember I spoke to a lot of my peers um, and just mentioned the idea, just kind of in conversation over coffees and stuff. And I had quite a positive response to that. So I thought, you know what, there's no harm done. Let me, let me give this a go. Uh, and then myself with um, Tom, also from Kozak Lama, uh, we kind of were the first ones to kind of start Biome Collective back in 2015, uh, though it wasn't Biome Collective at the time. It was just a games collective. And over time, we got the name Dundee Games Collective because people were struggling to name us. But we really, we were really making it up, and we still are to this day, making it up as we go along, essentially. Um, because, you know, I have to be honest, I don't know what I'm doing in that regard, but I, that doesn't, that doesn't scare me in any way. I find that actually quite energizing. Mm. It, that's, 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 that's a problem for me that I, you know, I need to kind of, I want to solve it sort of thing. I don't know what the solution is. And so I'm kind of, we're trying things all the time. And so, and so the Biome Collective started with two people in 2015 and now there's like 13 or 14 of us. And, um, yeah, so it essentially we are a collective of uh, game makers and digital artists. We are a co-working space, which is really important to us. Uh, but also, the, I think the third element is that we're a community in the broader sense of, of, of the word, in the sense that we try and um, you know, do activities for the wider community, invite people in to the process sort of thing. So we do sharing evenings, we do, uh, we just did a game jam this weekend. And we just, with that, you know, Albert from Biome Collective just tweeted, hey, we're gonna do a game jam this weekend and we wanna do it differently to the normal game jam model. It's gonna be quite relaxed. And, you know, he just tweeted it, a bunch of us retweeted it and we had like 20, 25 people turn up on, on a Saturday. And it was nice because I didn't know half of them, which was really good. And we're trying to do things differently. So our whole uh, game jam, approach was you know we kind of provided a list of quite accessible game making tools uh things that you can pick up within you know minutes you know half an hour and we got over six hours we essentially just made a bunch of games together um so you know i'm primarily an artist so i you know and a, and a designer so i did more kind of narrative stuff and playing around with art as well but that was quite fun doing things in a different way mm -hmm. uh, and we're also we're getting up to doing uh, indie games conference in the city in September. So, and that's kind of us taking advantage of our international network because some of our work has taken us overseas and it's kind of connected us to, to the international community of independent game makers doing interesting stuff. Um, and, and that can vary from studios to companies to weird and wonderful collectives uh, doing interesting things. Yeah. yeah, so you said you, you sort of had you, you tweeted it out and retweeted it and then you had 20 to 25 to 30 people turn up which is an amazing amazing draw just oh, off such a simple yeah. mechanism yeah i imagine there'll be a bunch of people listening who are sort of thinking like well how do i get that sort of captive audience but i imagine that's sort of 
the result of, of probably years of, of work and building towards that. So I wonder if you could maybe explain some of the ways in which you built the audience for the collective and how you've built a sort of community around that and how you've maybe embedded yourself in like Dundee's creative community. Yeah, I think um, it has definitely been a lot of work. And I think a lot of it is um, just human to human connections and contacts. Um, and also doing a, a variety of work, a, a, portfolio, a portfolio of work over the past two years is very diverse. You know, we've done things like Killbox, which, you know, got a BAFTA Scholar nomination. And that was like an, an art installation about drone warfare that's touring around the, the world at the moment to the playable architecture stuff, which was with, you know, projecting giant things on the steeple in the city, in the city center. Uh, to a whole bunch of different workshop things. So we did a, a year-long collaboration with Hot Chocolate Trust uh, in the steeple again, and that was, again, different kind of work. And throughout those projects, I think we're quite, um, we're quite embedded in the curated community where we kind of take part in the Pechacuchas, the makeshares, and... Um, yeah, so in that sense, we're always having conversations with people. We're always, um, I mean, in terms of like social media and our online presence, it's actually not very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like our website is terrible. And and that's because we, on one hand, we haven't had the time. But on the other hand, we, we also, we want to do things on our own terms. And we haven't necessarily needed to have a website to connect too big an audience. And so everything's been done by word of mouth. Uh, so that yeah, so this weekend was nice to see that by using social media we came across new people, which is really important to us to kind of come across new people beyond our networks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's the cool thing about collectives is that it empowers individuals. So it's not just about me and my network of contacts. There's you know there's fourteen of us and there's fourteen different network networks of people that we can kind of go into. Uh, so I think that's really important that one, collectives have over more traditional business models. Yeah. So I'm interested to, to, to sort of compare this to the, to the more traditional agency model um, yeah. in that how do you function as a collective and as a profitable business that sustains the, the sort of livelihoods of those 14 people yeah. um, without necessarily having a distinct hierarchy? And how do the, the sort of roles and responsibilities work within that? Yeah, and... Yeah, and that, that is, a, is a very good question in a sense, and that's something that we're still uh, working on in many ways. But I think the best way to describe it is what we have at the moment is 14 membership, and that ranges from people who are there, you know, full-time, you know, whatever the hours, Monday to Friday, whatever, to people who do one day a week, uh, maybe one day a month, actually. So we're quite diverse in that, in that regard because some people have uh, jobs elsewhere, they have big contracts elsewhere, so they're kind of juggling that. So we kind of were flexible enough to kind of allow that. Um, and I think the actual, um, the business model itself is essentially we're all freelancers. And um, we all pay for our desks. And on top of that, there's a membership fee. Um, and the membership fee is essentially the money that goes back into the collective part. And that's just a small amount of money that helps us to kind of do things like the website, when we have events, buy a bit of food, you know, <laughs> buy a kettle when we need it. But also essentially that's kind of a collective pot that we're keen to kind of grow to kind of help maybe facilitate new projects in the future. Mm. Uh, but we're not there yet. You know, we're still a very young organization. 
uh, and a lot of the work we've done, um, you know, some of it has been commercial and it's stuff we generally we're not allowed to talk about and you know, it pays the bills. And it, 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 some of it is interesting work, but we're not allowed to talk about that sort of thing. Uh, but sometimes it's stuff that is um, through art funding, uh, public funding, uh, and that's the kind of stuff we can normally sing and shout about, which is quite good for us. Um, and in terms of roles within the collective, yeah, there is no hierarchy in a sense, but we do have uh, five of the members are directors. Okay. And that's primarily just to kind of take care of the admin in terms of, you know, making sure everything is done above board. Uh, we're set up as a, a company limited by guarantee. I guess the whole intention is to not be a, a to be a not-for-profit organization, essentially. Um, and I think what's really important for us is that Biome Collective is there as a very thin support structure so that it's not all about the success of one project, you know. If something doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's just something under the umbrella of Biome. And Biome Collective as, you know, as an umbrella just kind of continues to kind of grow and, and strengthen itself. But it's very low maintenance. That's really important for us, that it's, it's all about the projects. You know, when we all come in, um, Biome facilitates us doing cool projects, you know. Mm. And that Biome itself is this very, very thin layer, you know, little to no admin, hopefully, as much as possible. We keep that to a minimum. Uh, which helps us do more creative work. And then within that, I guess, different people do different things. You know, we have, you know, myself, kind of production art design. We've got audio design. We've got lots of programmers, you know. From so you think as a sort of balance of, of people in there, are you more programmer heavy? Are you more artist heavy? Are you creative thought heavy? I don't know. Um I think we're quite balanced at the moment and it's quite a broad range. There's quite a good few number of programmers, quite a good few number of creative kind of artists and technologists. We've got a web developer at the moment who just joined us recently. We've got a digital, a digital artist who just joined us recently. Uh, we've got three graduates who just joined us from Abate recently, which again is very good for us to kind of be able to offer that to graduates. Um, I think one of the challenges is that you know, getting work in, you know, to pay the bills, essentially, or getting funding in. Um, and sometimes you need more kind of producers like myself to kind of do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. I think everyone does bring work in, but um, I tend to focus on that a bit more. Um, just this kind of stuff I enjoy. Um, and so, um, yeah, we're kind of, we have, we definitely have bottlenecks at times, because obviously we might have lots of programmers, but they might be busy. So uh, it varies all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to move on to talk about some of your work, some yep. of the projects that you've been putting out. Um, obviously, you said there are a lot of the stuff that's known is mostly funding-led. Um, and I suppose you, from what I know of, of Biome's work, um, it seems to go down the sort of the more experimental or art side of games. Um, but I, I was I'm interested to find out where you think that the biome sits in the sort of the range of, of, of games and the sort of genres that, that fit within it, where biome fits within that. We're very much in the kind of indie game world of things. But even within that, I think we definitely lean towards more uh, creative or experimental work. And I think that's just as, as a result of the membership, you know, the individuals and are drawn to that kind of work um, and I guess we we see the opportunity uh, to do new and interesting work in the medium you know 
because um, otherwise we can just get jobs you know in the industry you know there's no um, and there's plenty of those in Dundee has lots of mobile game developers mm-hmm. um, always looking out for for hires but I guess for us is that it's a and in a way we're responding to this kind of global movement in games where there's just more people making more interesting work and we want to be part of that mm-hmm. you know we just have I think we realize that the medium has a lot of power to tell interesting stories, uh, to create interesting um, experiences, to explore things in a new way, uh, to, to innovate as much as I hate that word, um, and to kind of use design in more interesting ways too. So you would be open to expanding out to things that aren't necessarily traditionally considered games then? Oh, definitely. I think, and to be honest with you, some of our work isn't, always considered games by different you know people i would say mm-hmm. um even killbox the kind of art installation about drone warfare i mean killbox as an experience lasts you know 10 minutes yeah let's, let's talk about about that because it i think i first i first played it um at the first dundee design festival oh yeah yeah um and it's such a it's a really well crafted experience do you want to explain a little bit about it um, and this, in terms of the sort of experience of, of playing it? Yeah, so I guess the cool thing about Killbox was that it's as a project that could only have uh, existed through the power of the collective, really. So because we operate as a collective, collective and we have a space, it meant that uh, Joseph Delap, who's it was his idea to make a game about drone, drone warfare, was able to do a residency in our in our space and that kind of helped that collaborative process start and we were just coming up with ideas in that kind of first initial month with very very little funding actually to kind of make something interactive and fun for the web and we realized that we we're onto something when we created a very simple prototype and we realized actually this deserves a bit more time more development time so we played we applied to uh, creative scotland for funding which we thankfully we got and what was cool about that was that because we explored it as an experience uh, for physical spaces for galleries and museums um, that was a very interesting design challenge for us Um, and so as soon as we had a very early prototype we showcased it at an event called Games Are For Everyone in Edinburgh so it was at this kind of nightclub in Edinburgh and we, we took over a room we put the game in and we kind of got people to play a very, very early prototype and see how they responded to that. And it went down quite well. And that was a really interesting kind of starting point for an iterative process where we spent about 18 months developing the project, part-time, obviously. But we were always responding to festivals and events where we would showcase it. Um, what was interesting about the design festival last year in Dundee was that because of the design exhibition, we realized that a lot of people didn't actually play it. They would look, go over and they would observe, they would you know, appreciate the the nice fonts and the nice aesthetics and stuff and the well-constructed desk, but they wouldn't want to you know, press play or whatever. So that was quite interesting. And at different places, we had different audiences react to it in a whole host of different ways, from quite emotional reactions um, to indifference even. But overall, it was quite... A very very positive reaction mm. yeah but in essence the, the game is in two parts yeah um, and you 
you can experience it from either side to begin with, depending on which seat you you sit in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that was that was a thing we we discovered early on. We did a very early prototype, and we played around with the idea of offering two perspectives. Um, I mean, researching drone warfare was quite depressing. <laughs> it really was depressing. I mean, I thought I knew quite a bit about drone warfare because I'm just interested in current affairs and world news. But because of that project, I delved in deeper, and that was quite depressing. And but also, we didn't want it to be a you know a particularly patronising experience. We wanted to be quite objective and just provide a, a, a solid framework for people to make their own decision you know, allow thought process mm. and so we felt it was very important to to provide two interesting perspectives and games allows us to do that you know and that was you know another one of the kind of awesome things about games and interactive work um and so yeah by being either a drone pilot and quite a linear military style experience where you get told what to do and you just do it uh and then um on the opposite side, having a a child in a village just having fun, and then at some point a drone strike happens in your proximity, um, and then what we do is we obviously we, we if you start as one, it flips to the other, so both players get to swap out and play the other side, um, and yeah, it was really interesting because some people would had quite strongly emotional responses to that. Mm-hmm. People would stop playing, people cried, and. Um, what was really good to see was that it always led to conversation, quite deep, you know, thought-provoking conversation, which was the whole point of the art piece in the first place. So quite um, glad that we kind of pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, because you could see it, um, if you only ever experienced one side, you can relate to other games that have similar qualities and you can think, okay, I've played the game where I am a drone pilot or a, a... I don't know, whatever, a fighter jet pilot, and then you've blown up things and then you just get on with the next bit of the game. Um, and then you've been in other games that are just a bit fun and playing about and running around. And then maybe something happens um, that you have to deal with. But it's, it's actually the, the putting those two ideas together and that sort of brutal reality of it, which is often really far removed because we use games as a sort of an escape or a, a fantasy. It's sort of bringing that back and saying, no, actually, I'm going to use a game in context and use that and apply that to what's happening right now. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the power of uh, kind of short game experiences as there can be quite a good provocation. Um, I mean, I definitely play games as a form of escapism. You know, So I love my... Mass effects and playing there for hours and hours and hours in the Final Fantasies as well. But you know, I'm lost in this kind of, you know, amazing narrative, amazing aesthetics, really interesting mechanics. I'm lost for hours, and that's definitely a kind of escapism. But I think what, what's happening within the indie sector of games is that people are, are producing quite personal work that's quite provocative, you know, um, and sometimes very joyful as well. You know, the whole variety of kind of emotions and things that you can create uh, by just shortening something, you know. To one minute to five minutes you know and that's something for the for game for the game audience that's a, quite a challenge you know because bizarrely you know as gamers we measure something by the length of the experience so mm. that's why you get really funny um uh blogs which, which show you kind of steam reviews where you know someone's like you know you know hated this game and they've played it for like hundreds of literally hundreds of hours and they give it one star hated the experience or whatever and it's quite hilarious how People can devote their time to something and still walk away with quite 
uh, yeah, quite a strong negative reaction. It's quite amusing, yeah. <laughs> so you said that, that Killbox is now on a, a sort of world tour. Yeah, so um, we took it to a Mace Festival in Berlin, it still has a prototype at the time, and uh, the, the Goethe Institute, which is uh, the, the German equivalent of the British Council, uh, saw the game and they interviewed us and they were, they were, they were, they were they'd already completed uh, curating a selection of games to do with art, uh, sorry, games and politics. And after they played Killbox, they were very keen to include Killbox. So they included Killbox. So uh, as part of that, it's a, I think it's a two or three year world tour. And it's been to New Mexico, it's been to San Francisco and a few other places. Um, yeah, it's been to a whole bunch of places which is quite interesting to see kind of, you know, month to month, it just appears somewhere else. Mm. So it's quite cool to see, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, you've done a fair bit of uh, sort of traveling and, and going to festivals and things like that. Um, but then you obviously had quite a negative experience en route to America. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to ask me about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so d during the making of Killbox, I was very lucky myself and the team to go to a whole bunch of different places, to Germany a few times, Ukraine... We went to America actually three times in that, during that spell to different events like E3, which is the biggest consumer show. Uh, but my first trip to America was in March uh, last year, and that was to GDC, which is the Games Developers Conference. And so I, yeah, I booked, you know, got my ESTA, you know, what you do when you go to America. Um, and the, the rules had changed and I was aware, I, was, I knew there was something had changed uh, because of, you know, world affairs or whatever. And because, you know, I'm, I'm a British national, but I was born in Iraq. And so my passport clearly states I was, you know, born in Baghdad. Um, and four or five years ago, I'd visited my family uh, in, back in Iraq as well for the first time since, leave, since leaving. So I've clearly got, you know, my visa when I went and it's stamped and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so... I got my ticket absolutely fine, got the Esther, and that was fine too. And because I knew the rules had changed, I was like, oh, seems fine. Because you know, I knew that something had changed around, you know, where you were born and that kind of stuff. But it seemed fine. So got my ticket, flew to Heathrow first from Edinburgh, and there was a delay. So I missed that flight. So they put me onto another flight, and they, I guess, they sent, then sent me to Canada because you know because I missed the flight or whatever and because of bad weather and when I got to Canada that was the first point where I came across American customs and when they saw my passport they were like oh you need to go over there I was like okay fine so you know I've, I've had funny things before you know uh, being an Arab <laughs> and being born and you know happens you know happens quite often occasionally it will happen but it's normally you know they ask you a few questions and you're fine but in this instance, I ended up waiting for a few hours and then, you know, came across this big ex-Marine guy, you know, kind of explaining to me what the situation. He basically said that uh, because of the rule change that my uh, visa waiver, which as a British citizen is what I, we all get, was not applicable to me because A, I was born in Iraq and B, I traveled to Iraq you know, recently within the past five years. And I mean, to be fair to the guy, he was being super nice to me and trying to, you know, trying to say sorry without officially saying sorry. And he kind of, 
he read me, he read a bunch of weird questions about, you know, are you a terrorist? Are you blah, blah? And I had to, you know, answer all these questions. It was quite weird and uncomfortable. But then at the end of, at the end of it, he says, you know, we can't let you in because they had to, they, they essentially withdrew it. The, which was actually a good thing for me because it was like, it was not a negative thing on my record. And the guy just said to me, you're in Vancouver. There's actually a consulate uh, in Vancouver. He was like, maybe you can try your luck, um, see what happens. And so this was on the Sunday. So I, I got to the consulate the next day and you know, the giant queue outside, you, you can't just turn up. You've got to you know, actually have an appointment. So I found a cafe nearby, got an appointment, which was like the week after. But then once you're in the system, you can get it expedited. So I explained my situation in email or a web form or whatever. And they thankfully moved my thing to the Tuesday. So Tuesday morning at seven o'clock, I had to go. Um, I had to find a place to put my bags. because They search you going into this place. You can't take anything with you. So I got in and it took hours, like five hours to get into the consulate. And then the first guy I met behind a desk. And again, he was super helpful. He was like, oh, so sorry for, about this. And at this stage, like the news had gone kind of viral. There is a few game websites that were reporting the case. So when you say the news, is this just from you tweeting about it? Yeah, yeah. Essentially me going, you know, what the hell? I'm stuck in Vancouver. And so just people responding to me and it got picked up by a few uh, kind of game websites saying what's happening, all this kind of stuff. Because at this point, had the conference already started? Basically, it was just about to start, yeah. So I did everything on the cheap. I was going to turn up on the day and everything. So, um, And so that's why there's extra pressure to kind of get things moving. Um, and the guy was like, we'll do our best to sort it out. And at this stage, I got quite, you know, I got a bunch of support letters inviting me officially from various different organizations in the game sphere um and the guy was like i'll do my best he was like but it takes a week but we'll do our best um i was like it's the conference is right now i need to go back um and so yeah so i walked away around 12 got some lunch and had an hour free so i was just wandering around then i got an email saying your visas come through so the guy saw me within hours i got a visa which is awesome so I got kind of, um, yeah, kind of a 10-year back-and-forth visa uh, sorted. So it's quite stressful, <laughs> but managed to get in. Got some, like, lots of good, you know, PR out of it. Uh, so I ended up going to the conference. People knew who I was, you know, knew people and stuff. And, like, people taking selfies with me. Look, Miles arrived in San Francisco and all this kind of stuff. So it was quite cool in that, in that sense. Um, but stressful too, you know. So. Yeah. But the, from what you said of it, it was very much a... It wasn't a horrible negative experience. No, no, no. I mean, no, not at all. You know, I've kind of, um, <laughs> I guess, going back to life experiences, I've had much worse life experiences, <laughs> you know? Like, my family had to abandon our home in Iraq. We had to get a bus to the desert, through Jordan, you know? So, that, like, I was a kid, but that kind of stuff, that's a bad experience, right? <laughs> like, getting stuck in Vancouver and having to stay in an okay hotel for a few nights is not... The worst thing that can happen to you, you know. Yeah. And I got to see Vancouver, which was quite nice. So, yeah. yeah so it was all right in the end. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So to move on to talk about you a little bit, what kind of gamer do you think you are just now, and what sort of stuff do you like playing, and and how does that fit into your your life if you're sort of making games um, all day? Do you still use them as a sort of release? Mm. So 
yeah, I, I love games. I still do, thankfully. I still play games as much as possible. But I guess the more, the more, the more I make games, the more kind of I realize that I have less and less time to actually play them. <laughs> but also, I think it's as a as a maker of games, I think it's really important to kind of um, have different influences. So I don't like the idea of just kind of playing games and just making games, and that that loop is not a very healthy loop. So I, I try and do other things, you know, whether it's taking nice walks or film, animation, occasionally theater and stuff like that. So I try and kind of broaden my inputs into my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think indie games are really cool for me too because they tend to be short. They tend to be more personal work, which I kind of fit, I quite like. Um, and just kind of, you know, following particular game makers and seeing what they make and kind of being a fan of their work um, so, you know, so particular people always play their games just because on the strength of their portfolio, for example, mm-hmm. um, and that in some ways that kind of that kind of leads back to Biome Collective, where you know we we we've created Biome Collective to be this kind of mark of quality. So you know, oh, it's a Biome Collective experience. Oh, I want that because you know you're going to get something you know amazing quality, something interesting, something a bit new. Uh, I think that's really important. And, and so likewise, I like to kind of support independent makers doing interesting work yeah. so is there anything you could recommend uh whether that's film art tv games that you've seen read played in the last six months to a year oh uh, wow okay um okay so currently re-watching an anime called giant robo and I highly recommend Giant Robo. Okay. <laughs> Why? If you're into mechs and, and cool science-y stories, uh, it's awesome. It's quite high production as well. So it's, I'm always I'm quite surprised not many people know about it, but it's really good anime from back in the day. Um, in terms of games, um, I, I played a bunch of awesome stuff recently. I think Inside is really good. Inside is a really good game. You can get, I think, on... Xbox, PlayStation, and PC. And it's about a three-hour experience. Uh, and it's a very beautiful game, aesthetically, and quite a creepy story. So, yeah, that's a fun one. So, so definitely check that out. Um, I don't know what else, what else I've been watching. I rewatched The Thing recently. The, oh, yeah. the classic. Mm-hmm. The original. Yeah, yeah Carpenter's The Thing. And, yeah, definitely recommend that to anyone. Yeah, a lot of old school stuff. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. go. Um, so just to finish up, I'm I'm interested to, to hear your thoughts on Dundee as a city at the moment. Um, obviously, you're trying to do something very different, um, and there's a there's already like a, a well established games community in the city. Um, so in terms of of that games community um, and that industry in Dundee, what would you like to see happen over the next few years? Um, I think it's, I think it's something that everyone would like to see, and there's just more, kind of interesting games, you know, kind of more original content or original IP, whatever you'd like to call it. Um, I think there's clearly such a good, um, such a good narrative in Dundee of of heritage, uh, you know, going back to Lemmings, etc. And there's such a, so many people making awesome stuff, but I just like to see more. I like to see people taking more risks. And, you know, where is, where's the next Lemmings, you know? So I think we've got some very creative people in this city and we need to support them to take more risks 
and try different things. So, mm. uh, yeah, I'd love to see kind of Dundee really shine on the on a kind of international stage. Yeah. It's funny because it's on the same vein as um, what Colin said, Colin Anderson, when he was on. Um, yeah, we need the next the next big thing that comes out of, of Dundee. Yeah. yeah, and that doesn't necessarily have to be anything, something, anything like a Lemmings or a Grand Theft Auto. It'd be nice, though. It'd be nice, though, but, you know, I think sometimes, you know, past success can really be crippling or it can really silo you into your thinking. Mm-hmm. So I think... I'd like to see a, a bit more experimental stuff and I like to see stuff that takes games away from screens and embeds them in the city. Uh, I think, yeah, play and games can be such an accessible way uh, to engage with something. Um, and I think Dundee is such a wonderfully scaled city. The size is perfect for kind of awesome collaborative projects. So I think we can make Dundee as an awesome kind of playable city, mm-hmm. kind of embed interactive experiences all over the place you know um, and I, th- I think that way it can be a broader uh, perspective or broader range of perspectives inputting into that you know from interaction design to just design and just kind of game developers I think it'd be good to kind of broaden that out to more people yeah I think that it sort of leads on to my next question is kind of like what would you like to see within the city space of Dundee um, and you sort of touched on the, the, the sort of playable cities aspect of it. Um, it's something I'd like to see, just, just taking that existing fabric of a city and adding layers on top of it and yeah, saying, totally. we've, we've got this great place. Um, how can we make it better without necessarily plonking things on the yeah, street? Yeah, totally. And I think that's the trick is to kind of take advantage of what uh, exists in terms of technology, in terms of architecture and, and making the most of that. So we, we made like other an ARG four or five years ago. And that's essentially, that's a digital layer embedded all over the city that you access through an app, right? But that's just one example. You can make things even more accessible than that, you know, than that. So the playable architecture stuff we did where we just projected stuff on the steeple and it was interactive. That was awesome because it was so accessible. You know, we had kids, old people just bashing buttons and you could see the joy in their faces. So I'd like... Um, the city's kind of creative community within the games and the broader sense to kind of take advantage of the fact that Dundee is essentially a playground, you know, and we can kind of create cool projects to kind of, yeah, bring that out from people. Yeah. Great. Um, so if anyone wants to uh, get in touch with you or find out more about Biome, where do they do that? I think Twitter is probably the best thing. So at Biome Collective, we've got a website and we've got a Facebook. We're probably more active on Twitter. Uh, and then myself as well, just at uh, Maltron 3D on Twitter. Again, that's probably the main the main place. Okay, thank you. And that was Mal. Um, I'm sure you'll agree. It was a fantastic chat. Um, really interesting, really insightful. Um, thanks to Mal for taking the time to come on. Um, and yeah, do go and check out his work. Um, especially Killbox, it's uh, yeah, it's phenomenal. It's definitely worth a look. Um, again, links will be in the show notes. <clears throat> and uh, as far as the podcast goes, if you want to keep up to date, if you are new to the podcast, uh, the best way to do that is at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you want to join the Facebook group, that's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. And yeah, I'm really grateful to everyone who's out there talking about it. So yeah, if everyone could just tell one friend about the podcast, um, 
we'd grow the audience really quickly. So, yeah, if you could do that, it'd be great. Um, so, yeah, go and tell a friend. That's this week's task. <laughs> but <clears throat> thanks again for listening. Um, and also thanks to our sponsor, which is Joan Clevy Dance's production of The North on 30th of September at Dundee Rep Theatre. Um, to get tickets, you can go to cccdundee forward slash the north. Um, you can also drop in to the Rep Theatre itself and grab tickets there. And that's it for the main body of the podcast. All that remains is to recommend one. Um, so this is recommendation number four. And um, it's might well be one that a few people are aware of. Um, but if you're not, it is a phenomenal podcast. Um, 99% Invisible. It's part of the Radiotopia family from PRX, um, which is a big American sort of podcasting group. <clears throat> and they produce some, some really amazing ones. Uh, but 99% Visible is probably my favourite. Um, they basically take completely diverse subjects, just really, really interesting little snippets of, of different things, and go and explore them and pull out the stories and do the sort of investigative journalism. Um, it can be absolutely anything. I mean, there's, there's just so many fantastic... Um, episodes out there there's some brilliant ones on, on sort of flags and crests and the meaning of things and design that goes in behind it um and it's great sort of 30 minutes or so you can dip into a topic and then dip out but um really high production values um yeah really well produced and it's absolutely huge so i'd be surprised if, if quite a lot of you don't already listen to this but if you don't go and do it um, even if you're not particularly interested in design the stories are, are just fascinating um, and completely diverse and interesting so yeah 99% invisible but that's it uh, for this week so until next week goodbye <laughs>